0: Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today we are continuing our conversation about trauma with Ruth Cohn, a psychotherapist and BCIA-certified neurofeedback practitioner and author of numerous books and articles. I spoke with Ruth about how neurofeedback can help and about the role of neglect and early attachment relationships in the individual's response to traumatic events. what can a person expect from the 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 treatment as far as how frequently they're coming in how long it may take what may they experience
1: that's a great question Saul that is a great question i want to make another pitch and this is something that i'm really adamant about and Seaburn C- C- swears by it she's writes about it a lot and i i can't in- I can't emphasize this enough. Neurofeedback is necessary and not sufficient. Psychotherapy is necessary and not sufficient. We have to have both. And often, it's the neurofeedback that enables psychotherapy to be possible. And often, it's only through psychotherapy that we can even get someone to neurofeedback. So we've got these ironic Ironically and interestingly, we have feedback loops, both between psychotherapy and neurofeedback and also what happens in the process, which is that the neurofeedback brings a person into the capacity for relationship that the trauma disrupted. Because as we know that trauma is a fear experience and what's hardest hit in the area of fear that's created by trauma is attachment, relationship, trust, and most of our people show up in therapy. The most motivating, um, the most motivating experience that brings people to psycho traumatized people to psychotherapy and ultimately to neurofeedback is loneliness and a complete cluelessness and and suffering about relationship. So, where does that leave us as psychotherapists? Well, we've got a challenge given that good psychotherapy really is a relationship. And so, we've got a challenge here. This the work with trauma is not short-term. And that's unfortunate news that nobody likes to hear and my whole life, my whole career life, including my personal life, has been really sort of bemoaning the tragedy that a traumatized person has this hideous experience and then has to spend decades of their life trying to climb out of a hole. And so my life and my career has been about trying to speed up that process. So every treatment modality that came along that might speed up that process, I'm in. I want to learn it. You know, feedback is the quickest thing I've learned yet, but it's not quick. And if you read Seaburn's book, she'll tell you um, that sheep When and people always ask that question, how long is this going to take? Because they're sick of it. And most of the people, by the time they get to us, have been plugging at it for you know, a very long time already, we're not the first therapists in the sort of trash heap of therapists that have failed. And so, and hopefully we won't fail, but many of us do. They will ask the question, how long is this going to take? Because they're really tired of making wrong turns. So Seaburn put in her book, which I highly recommend to everyone, it's called Calming the Fear-Driven Brain, Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma she put in her book that it can take maybe 350 sessions. And she put that in there because we don't know. And hopefully someday um, insurance will reimburse for neurofeedback, but we want to make sure we've got ourselves covered because it can take hundreds of sessions. And often it does. Now, I had one trauma survivor. She had relentless just unbearable migraine as a result of her trauma. And she had been in therapy for many, many, many years. She came for neurofeedback. And um, she came twice a, when when she started the neurofeedback and her um, target uh, symptom was the migraine. She was on many medications when she started. We did neurofeedback twice a week for... Um, about 14 months, and then once a week for maybe uh, maybe four months. The total time was about two years of neurofeedback, the first part being twice a week, the second part being once a week. At the end of the time, she was medication-free and migraine-free. I never saw her again. This is a, um, I mean, she's a poster girl. So long story short, that was a two-year, very committed client. Um, We have a wide range. The person who lost all the weight that I mentioned, she's been with me for quite a number of years since before I had neurofeedback. So I started her with neurofeedback as soon as I got it, probably back in 2010. And during the pandemic, we didn't work regularly, but she's been kind of off and on neurofeedback for a long time. Other people, they have a short stint, maybe um, four to six months, twice a week, then once a week, and then they've gotten as far as they want to get. Maybe their life was not as unbearable, or maybe they have other things they want to do with their money or with their life, um, and they get what they wanted right then. So It's very much a range. So when people say, how long is this going to take? It's a tough question. I won't do neurofeedback with other people's psychotherapy clients anymore. And I won't do neurofeedback with people who won't do psychotherapy because it's absolutely essential to do both. And I truly believe that one without the other they won't make the kind of progress that we're looking for.
0: I think that's absolutely uh, true. Uh, And I I know as you were speaking, I was of course thinking of my own clients and what a range there is in terms of how long the training takes and what it means to even be getting better. Uh, Those are, I think, bigger questions in the psychotherapy world. I think also that we're, we're, we've all been trained by our healthcare system to ask how many sessions, how many sessions will something take, which is a, a difficult question and I think particularly difficult for some of the conditions you're talking about, which are chronic. I'm wondering if we can change tacks a little bit or change, change direction a little bit because I was really interested in some of your other work. In your recent book, uh, Working with the Developmental Trauma of Childhood Neglect, you lay out the role of attachment in developing both healthy and less healthy relationships. And I I wanted to talk a little bit with you about not just attachment, but neglect. It's something you'd you'd also mentioned before, neglect as trauma. Although it seems what you're saying is that in neurofeedback, neglect may show up not just as hyperactivity, but also hypoactivity. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your understanding of neglect and the
1: role it plays. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for asking that, Saul, because I'm really passionate about this, partly because neglect is a hugely, hugely neglected area. And the, the survivors of childhood neglect are a hugely, hugely neglected population. They have not been helped. So, my perspective about neglect is, first and foremost, among all mammals, the single most fundamental experience, not only for humans, but all mammals, is the connection, the earliest attachment to the primary caregiver. First and foremost, the mother, because we inhabit the mother's body for a long time, before we come out into the larger world. So that initial attachment is literally a lifeline, not only for humans, but all mammalian species. So the rupture of that is probably the single most life-threatening experience one could have. And many of our people, many humans, I'm speaking about humans now, um, experience the earliest rupture of that lifeline, and it's so far before any kind of memory is accessible. Any part of the brain even exists that is capable of knowing and storing experience, let alone storing and knowing it as narrative, making it verbal. So that experience lives in the body and then in the nervous system. So it is most um, intelligible in the brain. But what I have found is this experience, which is, I think, the ultimate trauma, is not remembered, is not verbalized, is largely unrecognized, certainly untreated. And so these people have continued to slip under the radar, unhelped, forever. So my work is about, first and foremost, becoming able to recognize and then help the person begin to get in touch with, know, put language to, and express their experience, which although they can't access it, as memory. they And this is one of the things that's both insidious and also invaluable about trauma is that trauma's not remembered, it's relived. So they basically enact this trauma in all their present-day relationships, including with us. And that's how we learn about early neglect is how it gets manifest in present time relationship and i began learning about this when i began working with couples and i have my first book is about that and it's all anecdotal and most of my work about neglect is anecdotal but i'm starting to talk more to people who are more in the world of science so they will study it i don't think of neglect as a sister alongside trauma, the shock trauma, the overt trauma being the real deal and neglect being sort of like a stepchild, but rather trauma, neglect is traumatic. And as traumatic, if not more traumatic, as all the other kinds like sexual abuse, physical abuse, the things that we associate with trauma that are more showy, that are more dramatic, that are more violent Overtly violent. That's how I think about neglect. And it will show itself in the therapeutic relationship, which is why we have to be so very skilled and patient to do this work.
0: So you're saying that neglect is a rupture of that early attachment relationship. And that early attachment relationship, the point of it is to keep an individual safe and for them to develop a sense of safety. And if that's ruptured, there is no sense of safety, which I can see is, is a similar experience to what one of these more overt traumas may do. And you see it as affecting or even more affecting than these more overt traumas. Is that because it is disrupting this most basic relationship, the attachment relationship?
1: That's part of it. And what I said was incomplete. And for those of you, those of your listeners who haven't read Alan Shore, and this is a hard sell because he's really, really hard to read. And maybe he's got YouTubes now. I don't know. But when I first learned Alan Shore's work, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have any. We didn't have Google. We didn't have Wikipedia. We didn't have any of that stuff. So I had to read Alan Shore. And basically... Alan Shore, who's a genius, wrote a a book. His first book was called Something About the Origins of the Self. And basically, the way the infant brain develops is through the early, early resonance between the infant brain and the mother's brain, right hemisphere to right hemisphere, largely through the gaze. And so through this gazing experience, that undeveloped mass of cells, which is the infant's brain, begins to come online, begins to develop through the resonance. And it's through the resonance with the mother, or through that, whoever that is, and hopefully it's the mother, but often too often it's not, we learn regulation. And regulation is basically the ability to calm down when we get aroused, when we get hyper aroused, which we do a lot as infants because when we are hungry, when we're scared, when we're cold, when we're wet, when we want to be touched, when we want to make sure there's somebody there, the baby is in distress and the arousal goes up. So what the What the fortunate infant will resonate to is the gaze of of an other that is present. And basically, and I, I say this a lot to my clients because I get this image in my mind at, you know, in these key moments. If this infant looks up into the eyes of a loving other, if I look up into the eyes of a loving other, and I see this loving reflection of me, that calms me down. There's somebody there who's present, who's with me, who's letting me know everything is going to be okay. So the whole organism experiences safety, and through that repeated experience of looking up and seeing that, the system learns not only to calm down when you have that experience, but it learns to calm itself down, which is what we call regulation. So being calm and being connected is all about being regulated. So if the infant looks up into the eyes of a terrified other, or a depressed other, or an angry other, or if the infant looks up and there's nobody there, or if the infant sometimes looks up and sees one face and sometimes looks up and sees a completely different expression of that face, that child does not develop regulation that child develops dysregulation and fails to develop the capacity to self-regulate so then fast forward you get these children and adults with these really dysregulated nervous systems because that in the the outside the wilderness clothing people call a base layer, that layer of warmth that you put under all your clothes that keeps you warm and it's closest to the skin. And that's what I think of as this earliest attachment experience. It's the base layer. And interestingly, way back in the 70s when I was a far left-wing activist and um, dictatorships were taking over Latin America and people were being imprisoned and tortured all over Latin America with these miserable tortures. I once read a book, and it's a really interesting book. It's called Hope Under Siege. I read this long before I knew anything about anything. I, was, I wasn't even in therapy yet. It was before I was in my 20s. And the political prisoners who were tortured who had secure attachments in their childhoods, in their families, they were the ones that didn't break under torture. Because their nervous system was regulated, they could hold on to a sense of self and stay grounded even when their body was being completely, completely devastated by pain and sadism they could stay grounded and stay centered and not break and not, not speak under torture. That is the power of that early attachment experience. And when that is absent, you can imagine the power of its absence. This is what we see in our offices. Now, you layer on top of that, say, childhood trauma. So, you give, you take a child with sexual abuse as a young child. Um, that child doesn't have, for example, well, if that child was protected enough by a protective other that was aware of where that child was and who was getting close to that child that might do harm to that child, they probably wouldn't have had the abuse happen because most interpersonal Familial abuse that can happen wouldn't happen without a disrupted underlayer of attachment. So there's probably some layer of neglect underlying most childhood trauma. That's a generalization because some of the some of the people we see have more social traumas. Like now, you've probably got a whole generation of Ukrainian orphans that. Uh, maybe they did have a, an early attachment experience was sec- that was secure, but it all got blown apart, and the parents are dead. They might be four or five already, or you know nine or ten or twelve or thirteen. But even with their probably their early attachment experience was was okay, but it will but it will it will suff- it will buffer them a little bit to the later experience of. Of trauma that they, that they undergo. So I can't say that it's true for everyone with childhood trauma that they don't have safe early attachment experiences. Most of the people who come into the, our offices probably don't have a secure attachment initially. And the final thing that I, I will say, and this is so very important for therapists, is because we don't They don't have a story about their infancy, of course. They don't remember it. We rely for information about that experience on the way we experience them in relationship, the way we observe them in relationship, but also, and this is key, what we experience in our own bodies, in their presence, because we're starting to understand better and as time goes on, more and more about energy fields and how the experience of a person energetically is somehow transmitted to us energetically. And so I may have this odd tightening in my stomach when I'm in somebody's presence, or I might feel angry, or I might feel bored or sleepy, in this person's presence and more than likely we're picking up something from their inner experience that they are not aware of or that they are not able to express in language we have to learn to really be mindful and present and able to understand and become curious about our own inner experience because these people don't have story
0: it seems like what you're saying about the attachment relationship is that if it is secure, that is, if as an infant, the individuals learn to self-regulate effectively, that is a buffer a protection against traumas, traumatic events. You can overwhelm it, but it does serve as a buffer. But for those who start out unable to self-regulate, those traumatic experiences may... Cause even greater uh, impact, although I'm not sure how or if we we measure that. But but the model you're using certainly suggests that. How do you think about rebuilding that attachment relationship, and is the self regulation training of neurofeedback and possibly biofeedback part of that rebuilding
1: process? Absolutely, absolutely. And because it is so early and because it is so integral and so fundamental, it is not simple. So whatever access route we can get is really important. And one thing that I um, discovered, not only through my own experience, but also through the experience of my work, is that many of our traumatized clients do have partnerships, do have long-term partnerships, have very difficult partnerships. And when we work with couples, we see things that one may never see in individual therapy because nothing activates the early trauma more powerfully, and any of us with a partner knows this, nothing is a more potent trigger than the intimate partner. And people show parts of themselves in the intimate partnership that they never show anywhere else. We see the worst of people when we work with couples, things that the individual therapist never sees. So when I started working with couples and I learned that people reenact their trauma in the partnership like nowhere else, that is a very potent way to see what their attachment pattern is in life, in real life. And they get into these feedback loops that are unbearable. And if we can help them with that, and we can, that is a profound contribution to their lives because they suffer. So that's one access route. Um, Neurofeedback is a really powerful one, and it's one that does not require speaking. Although we learn a lot from the therapeutic relationship in neurofeedback, and many of these survivors of neglect are very dismissive of the therapeutic relationship, or they're not interested in it, or they discount it, or they don't want to engage in it, and it's only through the experience of neurofeedback that they become able to engage with the therapist. The therapist, the therapeutic relationship is a powerful way of working with the attachment rupture. And with many of the neglect survivors, where they may have long standing partnerships, but they partner with somebody who is so self concerned that they don't really have to engage in an attachment, their attachment system is somewhat dormant and they live in what I call a one-person psychology. So it's through the neurofeedback that we actually begin to access the attachment system. Um, So to answer your question, how do we approach the attachment rupture? Neurofeedback is a wonderful way in. And if we can engage the person in neurofeedback, often that is the access route to being able to work with the attachment system through therapeutic relationship. I want to stress this piece to therapists that I think of it as what we, what I call, I was a runner when I was young, a relay race. And in relay races, the the runner passes the baton. Each um, runner does one segment of the distance and then they pass the baton And the next runner takes over. So it's between this sequence of different runners passing the baton that they cover the distance. And in many cases, we are relay runners in these these, uh, therapies because the person will be with us. We have a shelf life. They basically stay with us for a certain length of time. They move on. They find somebody else. We have to be able to tolerate that. Not everybody, but many of our clients are very dismissive, so they will only engage in the psychotherapeutic relationship to a point, and then they're on their way, but that is a very potent way in. Certainly, my, my recovery my own personal recovery from trauma and neglect um, were more than anything through a 40-year, multiple time per week psychotherapy with my therapist who's retired about three years ago at the age of 90. But I always said to her, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep coming here till you shut the door. And I did. Okay. I'm a sex sex therapist, and it's a kind of a circuitous route that I came to sex therapy. It's in my book, so I won't talk about it now. I write about it, and I'm going to continue writing about it. But most therapists, most healthcare providers don't talk about sex. And clients and people in general think it's natural. You're supposed to just know. And I'm saying, no, it's not something that everybody knows, that people basically don't know, they don't talk to their partners about it, they don't talk to their parents about it, and I've had people who've come to me from multiple couples therapists, their couples therapists have never talked to them about it, psychiatrists don't talk to them about sexual side effects of antidepressant medications, their cardiologists don't talk to them about the side effects of of high blood pressure medications, their um cancer doctors don't talk to them about sexual impacts of surgeries and chemotherapy. People suffer sexually, and they don't they're afraid to talk about it because they think nobody's talking about it because you're not supposed to or because you're supposed to know. They learn about sex from the internet, from porn, from propaganda, from Viagra commercials, and nobody's talking to them about sex. So my little pitch is please educate yourself about sexuality. Please invite your clients, your patients to talk about sex. They have sexual dysregulations. Many of them are suffering sexual difficulties with their partners. You cannot imagine how many people, not just our patients and clients, but people in the world, couples in the world who have not had sex with their partner or anybody else in years and decades, and they're suffering and they don't know how to talk about it, and they think they're not supposed to. So please, educate yourself about sexuality. Become fluent in speaking about it out loud. Use the words explicitly. Don't say down there, say vagina. Talk about clitoris. Talk about orgasm. Talk about erection, penis, whatever it is. Learn to say the words comfortably and get Create comfort and ease in the room for your clients to talk about sex. And for years, I tried to build a bridge between the trauma world and the sex therapy world. It's very, very slow, if at all, to start. That's been a little mission of mine for 20 years.
0: Ruth, thank you so much for joining us here on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. This has been a really interesting conversation. I think our listeners will really get a lot out of it.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, as they say on NPR. And on BBC, what they say, which I really like, is thank you for your company. So thank you for your company. It's been my pleasure talking with you, Saul. And I hope we do do it again.
0: You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org. To find out more about the organization including our trainings monthly webinars and yearly conference i'm your host dr saul rosenthal and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was ruth cone a psychotherapist and bcia certified neurofeedback practitioner in san francisco she's also certified in sex therapy and a number of somatic therapies she's the author of three books and numerous articles find out more about her at MFT. Com. Remember, you can join NRBS at our virtual conference on October 21st and 22nd with a 25% discount by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at NRBS.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions, at healthybrain at nrbs.org leave us reviews as well it really helps podcasts like this one which reach more listeners healthy brain happy body is produced and edited by me the theme music is catch it by coma media be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on healthy
1: brain happy body